Welcome to the Lounge, a show where I chat with top names in the gaming industry. Like today, I've got Aaron Reed, the designer of Archives of the Sky, which is currently on Kickstarter, about a week left. We talk about a lot of great stuff, including, hey, what's on his bookshelf? So sit back, relax, and enjoy the lounge. I was I was checking out your your Kickstarter, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and everything on, um, uh, Archives of the Sky, um, yep, which looks awesome. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I love I love the the narrative concept. It's something that I've I've always played with, and you know, to to some extent, every RPG has a narrative element, right? But the idea that this is this is a way to tell stories in games is something that I don't know. I feel like it's it's yeah, becoming it's- more common. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me, like, <clears throat> I think you've seen a shift between, like, from really simulationist RPGs in the old days to stuff now that's looking more at, like, actually how stories work and how characters work and having rules about how to do that. Right. Uh, which, as, you know, I come from a background of being a writer, so that's really interesting to me. Yeah, me too, actually. I, uh, you know, I, I, I always tell people I, I'm an English major. I'm a stickler for, for lingu- <laughs> nice. linguistics. Um, yeah. And I was an English major because I was like, that's how you become a writer. But, uh, you know, that's also yeah. how you become a computer tech, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's um, uh, the, the one thing I, I, I wanted to bring up. So I, I've I watched the video on the Kickstarter and I have this fascination with pausing when people have their bookshelves behind them. <laughs> and and like looking around their bookshelves just to see what's on right. there. Um, and I've never had this conversation with a creator before. Um, so I wanted to I, I wanted to 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 mention some things I had taken note of. Yeah, um, totally. So, <laughs> um, uh, you had GURPS third edition on there yeah that's true um, i haven't uh, cracked that one open in a long time but <laughs> i i would imagine so um gurps is for whatever reason gurps is is my favorite system uh yeah and, i think that was the first um like non-system specific role-playing engine i ever encountered and i was really intrigued at the time like you mean you could tell stories about anything with this that's amazing yeah so yeah. <laughs> and, and third edition was like yeah i felt like it was like, oh, here's this pile of like 600 pages of rules that you can do anything with. And I, right. it took me a long time to let go of third edition. Eventually, we were playing fourth edition in our group. Um, but that's, I, I, I was like, oh, hey, I know that book very, very well. Um, <laughs> yep. I was, I was a little surprised to see a, a third edition uh, basic book that that intact, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, it, that one never sadly got much play with my friends. We tried it a couple times, but we it didn't really stick. So, like, I was really intrigued by like the concepts in it, but I never really had like a long term regular group using it, which is a shame. But yeah, well, um, I like the system a lot. It's you know, 
just does what it needs to do in a kind of satisfying way. Yeah. It's what's interesting is you can take other things and drop it in there and have a very different experience yeah. than originally intended. I'm actually running a, um, a GURPS X crawl game right mm, now. Cool. That's very strange. <laughs> it's yeah. They had a lot of, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. I was just going to say that a lot of their supplements, um, again, it's been a while since I've, I've read any, but back in the day, especially were really great. They have a, um, the GURPS time travel book, and it's just this kind of like amazing catalog of all the different ways time travel might work, right? Yeah. Like divided into categories and like, here are the pros and cons of this system from the perspective of like telling stories within it. And like even role-playing aside, it's just like a fantastic resource if you're into that kind of thing. So. I, I've said that for years. GURPS books are just great resources overall. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, I, what I was going to say, though, is like if you play Xcrawl is meant to have evoke a very specific experience. It's like you're you're doing all the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, but it's for is a spectator sport. Um, but if you use like a Dungeons and Dragons style system, like, you know, uh, uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics has a version of Xcrawl, Pathfinder does, etc. You, that's pretty much the, the experience you get. Like you're doing Dungeons and Dragons, but you have spectators. Whereas GURPS has all the rules for what the spectators and what all, like all that other stuff does. Hmm. And it's been, it's been very interesting to, to apply it to that. But, um, I, I also noticed that you had, uh, uh, Hero Fifth Edition. Yeah, that's another one that hasn't been cracked in a while. But <laughs> <laughs> it's so um, it's so big, right? It's like a huge. I forget how many pages it is. I want to say like five hundred pages. You know, yeah. it's just a massive tome. It's um, and it, and it's so much like just math. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think what uh what impressed me about that at the time was just how thorough it is about, you know, like, let's really break down in, you know, <laughs> excruciating detail how you would make a system where you could have any superhero power, but have them all be, you know, balanced or at least, you know, making gestures towards having that work. But just like the, um, the amount of thought put into like systematizing that um, uh, at the time, especially was really impressive to me. It's, I think it's a good book to keep on hand if you're a game designer. Because mm -hmm. it has good examples of what you can do and sometimes maybe what you shouldn't do, <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. But, um, and then, of course, there was Fate Core, um, Dungeon World, Hillfolk, mm -hmm. which yeah. I'm dying to get my hands on. Yeah, yeah, I like that one a lot. Um, but then I, I happened to notice the Hashtag Feminism book, which I just got myself yeah. uh, in PDF, uh -huh. and... Uh, which is which is really awesome. Um, yeah, I love um, uh, role playing game anthologies in general. Yes. It's just like a mind blowing concept to me. I have like maybe three or four of those, and every time I see a new one, I'm just like, ooh, must acquire this. Um, but yeah, that one's that one's really interesting. Um, I've had a couple sessions now uh, with friends where we've got together and just randomly tried a few games from that, and they're all just like really well. They're really small, right? They're just like one or two page games, but they really get at each of them kind of gets at some different angle on sort of like the core subject matter, right? And they they make you think about things in a really interesting way. So I've had a really good time both reading through that and playing some of them. I, uh, well, I was going to say, like, I'm kind of new to the idea of 
you know, like, like mini games or even indie games in a weird way. Um, I, I wouldn't say new, new, but like, I feel like that was really coming about in like 2009, 2010. And I'm about two or three years into it now. And I'm, I feel like I missed, I missed the, but you know, um, so, so I enjoy that. Are, Are there any, are there any anthologies that you've, you've seen that you would like recommend to people that are just into, to collecting those? So I just barely got one. Um, I think it's a couple of years old, but I just got it called Seven Wonders. That is seven. They're not like one page games, but they're like, you know, pretty smallish games mm-hmm. um, from various designers who have done, you know, interesting things in kind of indie role playing game spaces. Um, and that has a lot of really great ideas in it. I haven't played any of them yet, um, but the first one in the book, um, I'm spacing the title, of the actual game, but the premise is um, your. Uh, um, like adult versions of essentially like the children in the Narnia books. So like as kids, you somehow discovered uh, a way to reach this magical land. You had, you know, amazing adventures, but then you grew up and you could never go back. Mm-hmm. So the game is essentially you're all sitting together in like group therapy, talking about like what's happened in your lives and how this sort of what essentially became a traumatic experience because you had this wonderful thing that was then taken from you forever like how you how you dealt with that and how that's you know influenced the rest of your life um so that that uh i like that concept a lot so <laughs> that's fantastic well i oh anything that turns turns uh you know some some narrative that you know on its ear is always fascinating to me yeah um, that's real from a design perspective that's real smart because it gives everyone like a starting point already right you're not yeah. trying to like build something from scratch you have kind of a a shared vocabulary. So. Well, and I think sometimes you, you'll hear writers say, Oh, I'm, I'm avoiding tropes or I'm avoiding archetypes and like, oh, yeah, but sometimes that's shorthand for like limiting how much explanation needs to go into a thing. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so dungeon world, uh, which you mentioned the first time I played that or the first time I read it, I should say, uh, I was at first a little disappointed because the character classes are just like very stock, right? It's like, there's the thief and the wizard, right? Yeah. And like, that's it. I was like, oh, that seems kind of boring. Yeah. And when you play it, you sort of realize how that really does let you just shortcut all of the sort of world building and explanation stuff because everybody knows what a wizard is and everybody knows what a thief is. And then you can just focus on like, how is your thief, you know, what is their personality? Like, how does your wizard do things that are different from other people? But it just really just sort of lets you jump right into the actual role playing and you know world building part, uh, which is very nice. Yeah, yeah. It, it, well, that and that's I kind of felt the same way. Um, I, I think it was the playbooks that I saw first for Dungeon World, and I was like, is this this is just you know D and D, but with uh, the powered by Apocalypse engine. Um, but then I I actually started. Before I read it entirely, I started running a game. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of it was the kind of thing where we're all sitting around on a Friday and like our regular plans fell through. I'm like, ah, I just got Dungeon World. We want nice. to try this out, and uh, and that ended up being one of the weirdest campaigns I've ever had. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, but but this idea of like granting player agency to 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 help build the world and you know um those those elements that of powered by apocalypse that 
are becoming almost ubiquitous yeah, in, the, yeah. in the industry. I mean, I feel like with uh, with Archives of the Sky, you've embraced that entirely. Yeah, definitely. I think Powered by the Apocalypse stuff has been a big inspiration on me. And as, as you mentioned, I think a lot of other designers right now, um, it just has, you know, a number of really smart ideas. Um, I think one that I'm surprised, I mean, you, you definitely have seen this in earlier systems, but I'm happy to see this becoming more common. It's just the whole notion of like um, partial success, right? Like mm. either you hit and kill everything or you lose and you drop your sword. Actually, there's this really interesting middle ground where maybe you hit, but that you know gives you some complication. And so it's really cool in that system how foundational that is and how that is in fact numerically like what happens most of the time, or at least, you know, a large percentage of the time is like you fit, you succeed, but you don't get everything you wanted. Um, and that just creates so many great opportunities for, um, you know, storytelling moments and, you know, challenges to your characters that are different than the ones you normally sort of face. Um, so I like that a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's, it's funny cause uh, I thought of that very thing. Um, it, it, again, with our group, I decided, uh, we decided to do a mini campaign of only war, which is the, the Warhammer 40,000 role-playing game of the Imperial Guard. Mm, okay. And I bought the book at like 75% off because I'm like, this is just a pretty book, okay. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I had had it, and then we just had that discussion, like, oh, we've got like four weeks where we're missing, you know, a few key people in our group. Um, so in reading through that, there's a passage at one point in that book, this, this like, based off this old school Gronyard, um, you know, um, almost heartbreaker uh, mindset system mm-hmm. is this this little blurb talking about partial success mm, and i'm like yep. even when they were pr- publishing this they were like oh this this could be a thing yeah so yeah no it's definitely an idea that's like floated around for a long time but yeah. it's, it's it's cool to start seeing it be more mainstream because i think that really it really just adds a different kind of flavor which is which is nice so yeah and well so uh i i mentioned archives um, and I mean, the, you, you talk about what it is in, in the video, there's actually a great, uh, 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 text, uh, uh, play example on your, on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but, uh, where did, where did that idea, where did this idea come from? So it kind of, a couple different things kind of came together, um, so uh, one of them was that I'd been uh, a couple of years ago had really started getting into uh, indie role playing games in a big way, um, uh, in part uh, because um, I had just come off uh, a really big digital game project. Or actually, I think this was I was still in the middle of this project when this happened. So I kind of um, uh, I have a background as a writer and also as a digital games designer. So I've done kind of indie games um, on my own or in small groups for, you know, well over a decade now. Um, And I was working on this just really intense project that had a ton of just like low level um, stuff going on. We were using augmented reality um, and uh, had to write our own um, engine to do this sort of combinatorial narrative thing we were trying to do in this game. 
and just spending a lot of time sort of like in the coding trenches and in the debugging trenches. Uh, and I was really sort of like, I need more non-digital hobbies. So <laughs> I sort of started um, ramping role-playing back up as uh, an escape from that. Um, but really, you know, um, getting into all these games like Dungeon World and like um, a lot of the other games that I'm talking about, uh, um, like on the Kickstarter page, uh, so things like Downfall or like um, Lovecraft-esque is another pretty recent game I love a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and just looking at the things these games are doing. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, I was also working, uh, finishing up a PhD um, at a really cool research lab in Santa Cruz, uh, looking into um, sort of computational media and uh, games and games technology. Uh, and I was, you know, doing a lot of research into um, digital games and uh, and specifically sort of interactive narratives in digital games and what are sort of different ways that you can offer players agency in that context other than, um, you know, do you choose option A, B, or C? Um, and I sort of started realizing that a lot of these indie tabletop role-playing games were doing these really incredible things as far as understanding how player agency affects an ongoing story that were really way ahead of what digital games are doing. So mm. if we go back to Powered by the Apocalypse for a minute, um, what's really fascinating, another fascinating thing <laughs> about that engine to me uh, from the perspective of being a digital games designer is it essentially just sort of offers the game master this algorithm for how to be a good game master, right? Like in, in the past, there's often been this notion of like, oh, being a good GM, it's kind of this mystical process. It's, you know, part art, part science. Some people have it, some people don't. Um, you know, what's the difference between a GM who just like railroads their player through their campaign and doesn't let anything change and someone who, you know, is better at improving? You know, it's like, well, you know, some people are just better at that. But Powered by the Apocalypse just literally says in the rules, um, like, here are the whatever 15 things that you are allowed to do as a game master. Mm -hmm. And you are only allowed to do them in these particular circumstances. And here is why you're doing each of them, right? So it just sort of like lays it out in this very like utilitarian way. And that's fascinating because it's taking this, this you know, mystical <laughs> process and saying, no, actually, just like, here's how you do it. Like, yeah. and not only how you do it, but how you do it well, right? Like a lot of those... Um, uh, moves that you have as a game master are in sort of encoding this knowledge about like what are effective ways of involving players in an ongoing story, what are ways of um, keeping people thinking about the right things, even just like really subtle things like um, it says you should always refer to people as their character names, never their player names, mm -hmm. because that's just like a subtle way of keeping people focused on the fictional world, not what's happening, you know, around the table, right? Um, so, uh, so, uh, so I started working around this time on Archives of the Sky, um, in part as an escape from uh, everything I was doing in sort of like my regular life, but then it kind of got sucked back in in an interesting way because I was actually like, uh, realized I think I could actually talk about this stuff in my dissertation and then sort of like <laughs> have an excuse to keep playing indie tabletop role-playing games and saying that I was, <laughs> you know, on task towards finishing my degree, which was, uh, a really lovely uh, combination of things. And it actually, I think, worked out pretty well. So I had, I ended up having a, a pretty hefty chunk in my dissertation talking about, um, you know, games like Microscope, like Apocalypse World. Um, and uh, and in, in each of these sections of my dissertation, I had um, talked about a game that I had created as sort of an example of the ideas I was talking about. And so the, an early version of Archives of the Sky sort of became that example game for 
the section on tabletop storytelling games. Um, so yeah, it was sort of just like a happy accident where I happened to be in a moment in my life where I could make this both uh, sort of like work and play at the same time, which was pretty great. So that's I, I mean when you when you can do that, uh, that's it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a mystical thing. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's uh, I I I I love that, and I guess like. The fact that you, you this was kind of like, uh, you know what? I just I just kind of want to get away from this approach or get my mind off this. Maybe I'll just make something awesome. <laughs> That's your mindset. Yeah, <laughs> it blows my mind a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's funny because like. Uh, I do this a lot, actually, uh, or, or like I, I start working on something purely for fun and then I get like super into it. So um, like another procrastination project I had during the dissertation was writing a novel that originally the intention was like, no one will ever read this. This is purely for my own like, you know, amusement. Um, and right now I'm in the process of like sending it out to agents and like, you know, having, having a, <laughs> trying to publish it because it got to a point where I was like, oh, actually like, I think this got kind of good. So um, <laughs> so I have, I have a hard time like, uh, doing things purely or uh, there's a part of my brain that always wants to sort of like um uh what's the word i'm looking for like get mileage out of the stuff i do right mm -hmm. like like it's, it can't be just for me i mean this is probably why i like game mastering in the first place right like uh, <laughs> i could like read a fantasy novel in my room or i could like invite a bunch of people over and like you know we could all do it together so. yeah <laughs> well and and it also that actually uh keys into something I, I wanted to, to ask you about because um, one of the things I've noticed, I actually got away from gaming, not maybe not entirely, but, but kind of for a few years, I just kind of got out of the, the realm, you know, after it was just around the time that like fifth edition was released and Pathfinder was really big. And that was all, you know, people I knew were playing. And um, I was kind of like, eh, I'm not, I'm not a fantasy fan. Mm -hmm. Um, I say that, and that's like the second time I've said that on this podcast, nobody's super <laughs> yelled at me. So, um, but it's, but it's not something that, that resonates really with me. So, you know, for me, it was, it was kind of this interesting thing to kind of come back into the, the gaming sphere. And what I've seen is that we're moving away from that adversarial game master players thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's more of a, a um, uh, boy, that's, it's not the right word. I want to say collusion, um, but it's more of a cooperative, cooperative. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. You know, and, and, but this archives in the sky, I mean, you, you, you do away entirely with, with game master. Um, well, yeah, mostly. Mostly, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, there's there's still some vestiges of that in there. There's an interesting um, uh, slippery slope, if you will. Oh, that's not quite the right connotation there, but um, uh, between so at a lot of games, even if there's no game master, it's helpful to at least have a facilitator. Mm -hmm. And then if you have a facilitator already, maybe it's helpful for them to be like 
thinking about certain things more than other people. So, <laughs> so eventually you're just sort of all the way back to a game master again. But um, <laughs> uh, I, I explored with that spectrum a bit in various versions of archives, but the final game did end up with, there's a, a role called the archivist that someone is playing, okay. which is supposed to be sort of like the person who is most familiar with the rules or who, you know, is sort of, you know, preparing things in advance. Um, and depending on how many players you have, they may or may not be playing a character. Okay. Um, one of the things uh, in the iteration on the design that was interesting is um, in a, tr a traditional game with a game master, there's sort of this division of creative um, thought processes going into the world, right? So the players are thinking about their characters and what their characters are doing. The game master is thinking about like the NPCs and the sort of you know world building and stuff like that. Um, if you get rid of the game master, then everyone kind of has to think about both of these things potentially, um, which can sort of uh, produce a kind of a cognitive overload, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when I started when I started thinking about making my own game, I went back to some of my favorite games that either had no game master or were doing other kind of you know experimental things with the storytelling, and looked at how they dealt with things like this. And one of the things that I noticed is that a lot of these games have various tricks essentially to reduce your cognitive load, right? So a pretty common one is in a lot of these games, you're not playing a specific character. Uh, so Microscope, for people who know that game, you don't have a specific character, you're mm -hmm. sort of zooming in and out of building a history of this world together. Um, Lovecraft-esque, which I mentioned earlier, is uh, kind of Cthulhu-themed, but um, there's only a single character and you take turns playing them. Hmm. And when you're not the person playing that character, you are thinking about sort of like, making the world creepy and, you know, introducing weird clues and complications to the ongoing story. Um, but what that does is it lets you sort of, there's, there are fewer things you have to think about at any one moment, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in archives, one of my challenges is like, well, can we do this, but still have everyone be playing a consistent character, right? Oh, I guess the one other game I should mention as an example here is Fiasco, which is <laughs> a pretty well-known game in this space. And that you have your own character, um, but there's not really a, a role for thinking about where the plot is going overall. Yeah. Um, and in, that's that's definitely by design, right? Like right. Fiasco is sort of designed to create stories in the tradition of things where everyone is just like out for themselves. And because of that, everything goes to shit for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but a side effect of that, I find sometimes is that when playing Fiasco, the stories tend to not be super coherent because no one's thinking about like, where is this going? What's the bigger picture? What's tying this stuff together? Um, it's totally fun. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter when you're playing it, that that's the case. Um, but a lot of times by the end, you feel almost a little um, whiplashed because like there were so many unresolved threads or like, you know, the tone maybe radically shifted or whatever. Right. Um, so anyway, this was a long way of getting it. When I, set down to design archives, I was thinking about, well, can we do a thing where people are still playing characters? Because that was an aspect of sort of traditional role-playing games I wanted to preserve, but where we can also get like a coherent story coming out of it without needing someone to have like pre-planned it in advance and be, you know, pushing you towards that. Um, so that was, that was sort of one of the challenges when I sort of sat down to work on this that I was, I was thinking about. It's, I mean, it's such a cool, you know, it, it it does have that feel of like, oh, what if Microscope was fiasco, like like in a weird way, <laughs> you know, uh, be, because 
Um, I've I've actually I've listened to a lot of actual plays of Fiasco. I've never successfully played Fiasco, um, which is something that uh, I I I do not hold in high regard. Um, <laughs> but uh, but someday I'll I'll play it. I'm I'm very excited to do so. Um, but like I've I've done Microscope a bunch of times, and like there's such this this element of like, Oh, you know, there's these big things. Um, but there have been every time I've played microscope, there's a moment where like, there's a character that either I create or someone else creates. And I'm like, I want to know more about this, you know, like I want to mm-hmm. see that person's story and stuff like that. And I think that's the whole idea of microscope. Um, I feel, I like the idea that, that in archives you can be, like this is your character, but you're also uh, growing the narrative. Um, right. Yeah. I also. Yeah. There's. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say there's um, in digital game studies there's an interesting concept where um, uh, there are these sort of two competing notions of um, either sort of immersion or agency, right? So if you think about like the holodeck on Star Trek, right? This is sort of this dream of uh, a completely immersive experience. So if you're on the holodeck, like you're playing a character, you're thinking about that character, everything that's happening, you're reacting to as your character, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a different kind of experience, which is more the kind of thing uh, you get if you're playing like a choose your own adventure book and replaying it multiple times to try to get the best ending, right? Where you're sort of less immersed in the story, you're more thinking about like what the bigger picture is, like how am I uh, like over multiple playthroughs? How am I managing my strategy so that I can get to the best ending? Right. So you're 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 less immersed in the story. You're more aware of like the systems that are governing the story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in um, in uh, tabletop and specifically sort of in archives, uh, I was kind of deliberately poking at this. Right. Like, can we be immersed in the story but also be thinking about its structure and where it's going and stuff like that. Um, there's a really fantastic uh, game. It's pretty early on for this kind of game. Uh, uh, it's called Polaris by Ben Lehman. So there's a more recent uh, role-playing game called Polaris. This one's from I think 2004, 2005, somewhere mm. back in there. Um, that um, is a really early GM-less game. Uh, it, you're playing a specific character in it. Um, but one of the things that it does is you're playing a character who sort of their character arc is known in advance. So uh, it's set in this sort of ancient mythical kingdom that's sort of falling into decline. These demonic forces are slowly corrupting the kingdom from inside and outside. Um, and you're playing a knight of Polaris of this this kingdom. And you know in advance that your character's destiny is, is to fall into corruption. Like okay. you will either betray your city, you will be killed by demons, right? Like you know in advance that's where things are going. Um, but one of the things that does is as you're playing, you're fighting for your character to win, right? Like you want your character to succeed, but as a storyteller, you know, they're not going to. So you, uh, so you're making these decisions about what would be the thing that would like, how could, (laughs) like, how can my character most nobly meet this end given that I know they're going to fail, right? Um, and it, it makes you think in this really interesting way where you're you're both role-playing your character, but you're also like telling your character's story more like a writer would be, right? Um, 
And that's, that was another pretty influential game on me because it showed me that that kind of thinking is possible, right? You can kind of have both of those things at once if you have a game system and game mechanics that sort of like help you, you know, get into that mindset. Um, so it's, it's interesting to me that that notion of just being like immersed in a story versus like thinking analytically about like, well, the saddest thing to happen to this character next would be this, right? Right, right. And well, and, and I think that when you're, when you're immersed in a, a single character and I'll use D and D as an example, cause it's usually the, just the example. If I'm playing a, a human fighter in D and D, you know, I'm not thinking, um, well, let's say a lot of gamers aren't thinking, um, <laughs> boy, what would be really cool for this story is that if, if, you know, he almost died and, and barely survived and ended up with, you know, a, a, like losing an arm or something and had to change the way he fought. You know, that would be a cool thing for this story. Most people are thinking, how do I get a cooler sword? Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this kind of this kind of I mean, there definitely are people who sort of play that way. Right. And are thinking about, you know, like it would be a cool story if my character took this disadvantage. But like in D and D, there really there's no like mechanical incentive for you to do that, right? right. There's like role playing incentive, like this would make a cooler story, um, but nothing in the system sort of supports that or encourages you to do that kind of thing. Um, so it's interesting to see rules um, and Hillfolk, which is um, a drama system, is sort of the underlying thing behind that, um, uh, is very much about uh, mechanizing these notions of like what are characters dramatic arcs um you know it's more satisfying if characters fail a bunch before succeeding and building sort of a whole system around that um so robin laws who built that system and is like a really you know long-term uh role play designer um built a lot of that system after writing a book called hamlet's hit points where he went through a bunch of classic works of literature including hamlet mm-hmm. and just sort of like beat by beat and scene by scene broke down like sort of mechanically what was happening in them like yeah. okay like you know, Ophelia just, um, you know, deprecated herself to this person and now Hamlet like insulted this person three times and then did this uh, and then sort of looked at like, if you look at those actions over the course of the whole story, like, you know, how are they working? What are they doing? Um, and that was, I thought a really interesting process. The book, the, the book is like really interesting, but it actually like, it has, I think for four, it's Hamlet and three other things that actually goes through scene by scene and like shows his breakdown of it. And it's, it's incre- it's very um uh it's a lot of detail right <laughs> like yeah, after a yeah. while your your eyes start to blur but the <laughs> overall project is is super fascinating to me because he's again just trying to get at this notion of like how do we systematize what we think of as good storytelling yeah that's i i've i've heard of that um and i'm actually glad you reminded me of that because i like to have a digital book on hand to peruse uh, when I can, because I feel like that makes me smarter than playing games on my phone. Um, so um, not that there's anything wrong with playing games on your phone, but, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by that idea. Um, and it's, it's something that it seems, I guess it seems novel because it's just becoming more of a thing, but it's not really, you know, I can think of times years ago playing a game where there was this point where, you know, I'm trying to think of, I don't know. I don't want to tell just 
my dumb gaming stories on my podcast. So, but I can think of a time where I, I had a character that was um, uh, basically holding off some unbeatable force as the rest of the group got away. Um, and I, I, you know, game master was like, do you want to play this out? I'm like, no, I die. That's it. This is the end of this character, you know? (laughs) And it was kind of like, people still talk about that in that group. Like it was such a cool moment in that story. And I'm like, fine then then you know that's that's way more interesting than the character i brought in next <laughs> you know <Right. laughs> yeah um, for sure but uh so i also wanted to to talk about the trove because i love mm-hmm. this idea yeah do you want me to sort of set that up for yes. people listening? yeah so um so in a gmless game uh you can have the problem of well how do you avoid this just being like make-believe where anyone can say anything, right? right. Um, and in traditional role-playing, you either have the game master who is like has secret knowledge and is deciding things, uh, or you have dice or both, right? Mm-hmm. Which are making randomness happen. Um, so archives actually doesn't have any dice either. Um, so it needs some sort of system for unpredictability. And what I came up with, and this was actually super early on, this was one of the first, first things I think I came up with for the game. Um, is this concept of the trove, which is a deck of um, index cards. So you make this together when you start playing. Uh, and what the rules actually tell you to do, there will be sort of alternatives for this in the final version, but um, is grab uh, sci-fi novels you have lying around your house, um, give them one to each player, and spend a few minutes flipping through them looking for interesting words. Um, and so they should be you know, not like proper nouns, like character names or anything like that, but just sort of interesting evocative words, verbs, nouns, whatever. Write them one per card, uh, and then you shuffle them together. When you get to a moment in play where you're either not sure what happens next, or you want an idea, or um, you want to sort of resolve uh, a moment that could sort of go, you know, maybe this is going to work, maybe it isn't, you can draw from the trove. And then the person who drew the card gets to interpret how that word means the answer. So my sort of my classic example of this I like is um, the interesting thing about this is it's not black and white, right? It's not success or failure. It's mm-hmm. it's totally interpretive. So you might be diffusing a bomb and decide, okay, let's draw from the trove and figure out how this resolves. Um, you might draw the word fire. Mm-hmm. Well. For some people or in some moments, you might go like, oh, well, shit, it doesn't work. Like everything explodes. Um, That's really bad. Um, But other people might say, oh, well, the fire in my character's eyes as he successfully diffuses this bomb, uh, you know, right? Um, And so you might at first think like, well, aren't you then just back to make-believe again, right? If it can be anything you want. But what's interesting about that is it sort of gives you... um, uh, like we were saying earlier, it's like an opportunity to decide what the best story for your character is at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and I actually, this is a fairly subtle thing, but I sort of have noticed people doing this. I think when you draw that card in your mind, you're vacillating a little back and forth between like, am I going to do like what my character wants or am I going to do what's best for the story, right? Right. Um, you're sort of making this decision about how you're going to interpret this word. Um, a lot of times, like, it'll be, obvious enough that people don't even stop to think about it, right? Like, um, uh, particularly with like a really like negatively valenced word, like um, failure or something. Sure. <laughs> like, they'll just be like, okay, well, yeah, that's pretty clear what that means. <laughs> um, but um, 
but it's sort of an interesting moment where you get to choose which of those you know meta roles you want to play at that moment right mm -hmm. um and the other thing that amazes me about the trove is how often the word very clearly seems to connect to what's going on um and i think this really speaks more to the fact that people are so great at um connecting uh tissue like filling in gaps right explaining things um but like i would say on average 75 percent of the time it's like immediately obvious how to apply the word to the situation and the other 25 percent of the time you kind of have to like work at it but you can think of something after a few seconds right um and that kind of like it blows my mind that that works like it feels like that shouldn't work on paper right like a random throwing a random word into a situation uh as a resolution mechanic but um it really does work it's really interesting i heard um uh an interesting story once about that that power um there's a digital games company called fail better games that does a lot of really heavy narrative games uh so they have a browser game called fallen london that they're kind of most well known for oh, yeah. uh but also a game called sunless sea um and they have an interesting design concept that they call um uh fires in the desert which is that in their games you're not playing sort of like an avatar who's moving through the world uh, with sort of like total agency about like, now I'm picking this up, now I'm gonna like attack this person. Um, you sort of play through these little textual vignettes that aren't sort of directly connected to each other. And um, what they, what the, the reason, I mean, so part of the reason they do that is because it's easier than like building a 3D world, right? <laughs> Design-wise, um, what they're also getting that is that that allows you as the player to fill in sort of the gaps between those stories, right? So if you have a story about like, meeting a mysterious stranger at the bar, and then another story about, um, you know, going on some mission in your head, you're sort of filling in like, well, like maybe like I went home between those two things and like mm -hmm. changed into my like mission clothes, right? Or like, you're, you're sort of like building in these, this, these connections between things. Um, there's an interesting example of that, uh, um, which is uh, um, if I say to you, like imagine um, a doctor driving a Porsche in Los Angeles, uh, and then I say, imagine a doctor driving a Volkswagen Beetle in Tokyo. Your brain fills in like these completely different people because mm -hmm. of the assumptions you start making about why would each of those things be the case, right? And all I've given you is these three disconnected concepts, but you would just immediately start imagining these like two different people and like, oh, well, yeah, this guy's probably really quirky and maybe he, you know, likes this kind of thing or whatever. Um, so anyway, so the trove really, I think, just sort of plays on this ability of humans to draw connections between disparate things in a sort of satisfying way. It's what I what I love about it is I do um, improv comedy, and nice. yeah. um, which is, I mean, my you know, I, I do improv and I play role playing games. Uh, I don't like pre planning clearly, um, <laughs> but. Uh, um, but there's a game called uh, Paper Chase that we do um, where you have a bunch of phrases that are written down by the audience and you have to pull them out of your pocket. It's amazing how many times you'll pull something out and it's just it's perfect for wherever the na narrative has gone. Yep. Meanwhile, <laughs> that narrative got there by the random weird things that you're saying, you know, yeah, it, yeah. whatever that might be. So. Uh, it's, it, yeah, humans are, are, are capable of filling in, uh, a lot of details that we don't have, um, you know, yeah. for, for good or ill, I guess sometimes, but <laughs> in this case, you know, 
this is this is building a narrative. This is telling a story. So um, I actually mm-hmm. really want to play Archives of the Sky with my improv group. Uh, nice. Yeah. yeah. This might be the game that I'm able to convince them to play because <laughs> Fiasco is ha, has a little bit more rules mm-hmm. um, that are and it's dicey and you know there's a, there's a bunch of other stuff and I think that, that we could play that um, but there's anytime that's happened it's been like you know oh let's just play cards against humanity instead or something right uh, yeah so uh, this is the one I, as I've been looking through this I'm like oh yeah I want to I want to play this with with the nuts and bolts crew um, nice. see what happens because <laughs> I'm fascinated by non-comedy improv, mm-hmm. um, but you don't see, you know, improv drama groups, right. at least around where I live. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a, a much, <laughs> much less common thing. It's a much narrower uh, <laughs> field, but um uh, oh, and also, um, I wanted to make sure that I congratulated you on hitting your goal. Ah, uh, yes, thank you. Um, and uh, you've you're getting close to double, aren't you? Yeah, I think so. It's um, it's let's see, it's uh, 155%. So not super close, but getting no. there. So, but but getting um, there. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I'm gonna tell everybody to go out and and <laughs> buy it. Um. Appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been uh, it's been interesting. So this is my second Kickstarter, um, and uh, this one I sort of decided deliberately not to do a lot of stretch goals and a lot of that kind of thing um, because I had a pretty um, like essentially what the Kickstarter is for is to get art and layout design for the book, and mm-hmm. that was pretty much all I needed. Right. So I thought about well, like I could do. Like one of the things, especially in role-playing games, that kind of bugs me is sometimes you see Kickstarters for role-playing books that get wildly successful, and then the book ends up being like this massive, like 300-page <laughs> right. hardcover thing because they met all of those stretch goals to have like let's have like you know some essays by these cool people and let's have some scenarios by these cool people, and it's like all good stuff, but sometimes I'm like, man, the this book would have been better if it was just like an 80-page like slim <laughs> right. like straightforward thing right so I, I especially didn't want to sort of like bloat the book up with a bunch of stuff um but also most of the sort of stretch goals I could think of were like oh, that would really just sort of like be a distraction from the core thing I want to do so um so it's actually been kind of nice because once I hit my goal like uh, you know obviously I'm still talking about the game and still hoping as many people find out about it as possible but I don't sort of have like the the pressure of like oh my god I hope I get to the next stretch goal mm-hmm. um the uh, with the other Kickstarter was kind of funny because I uh, before I had done this I sort of assumed that like everything was just gravy after you hit your goal right like oh after that everything's great but if you have stretch goals it's just like constant pressure right because every moment during those 30 days or whatever your duration is um, that you haven't met like your final stretch goal or whatever right you're always thinking like oh I should be like tweeting more I should be blogging more I should be emailing more press right like every moment basically you feel like you're not working hard enough like in this window that you have to make your project as cool as possible right so yeah. even after your goal it's just this constant pressure to like be working harder on promoting it um so this time has been a little more relaxing it's just been like yeah you know we'll see we'll see where it goes but i've i've got to the point i want to get to so that's awesome so yeah no that's i mean better for my sanity 
that's a, that's a that's a that's actually really good advice for for people doing kickstarters is to not go crazy with a stretch you know yeah. un- unless you're ready to do that um so yeah. well and sometimes i mean you know obviously it's different for everyone right like some projects uh you know, it really does make sense to break it out that way. And obviously, uh, stretch goals, I think, can create more excitement and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But for this particular project, I was sort of like, yeah, I, I think I think I'm fine with <laughs> the one goal. <laughs> so there's there's also something really nice about saying, here are the things I need. Once that's paid yeah. for, cool. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, um, well, um, I, I'm I'm very excited about this. Um, well, you know. Yeah. Every every designer I talk to, I'm I'm like, oh, I want to play this game so bad. And there's, I don't have a million hours in the day. <laughs> yeah, um, that's um, that's my my tragedy too. Um, I've been trying the last couple of years. I've gotten into going to um, uh, like role playing cons and meetups, and just you know, uh, okay, it's a four day weekend, and I'm gonna spend like you know ideally 16 hours a day role-playing for each of those days. Uh, and that's kind of been a nice way to like feel, feel a little more. Um, it's like, yes, I just did like as much role-playing as I normally get to do in like six months. That's, that's great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of good. And I, you know, I try to feel like a breadth of stuff at con. So I, you know, like trade systems I haven't tried and stuff. So that's a nice way of kind of catching up on the backlog a bit. But um, uh, yeah, my um, my my tragic story there right now is I live in a very um, uh, a, a college town essentially. So like most people, um, like I think a good half of the population here is um, uh, at the college, uh, and most people when they graduate go move somewhere else to get a job. So uh, essentially, my role playing groups are like continuously losing people. So it's like a <laughs> ongoing struggle to sort of like keep a. a a group together that's big enough to, you know, consistently play stuff. So, yeah, I, well, and, and I mean, I have, uh, I kind of have weirdly the opposite issue, but it's still an issue. Whereas I've been playing with this group for so long and we've been together for so long, um, that it's been moving the needle into like, Hey, let's try a mini campaign of this. Mm, has right. been a little tough because like, it's like oh we want the, all the big epic campaigns or the the long running stuff and um and you know we're we're just at a point where um like this Friday I wrap up my my only war mini campaign it's like I don't have anything else planned for it you know <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to do it anymore it was just to see what the system was like and you know what it was like being an imperial guardsman mm-hmm. <laughs> for for them and. You know, and that's kind of cool, like like being able to do that. But man, it took a long time for us to really get to that point where, um, where people were were comfortable with that. So yeah, yeah, it's true. If you've been playing, you know, your Pathfinder campaign isn't it's like fourth year or whatever, it can be yeah, hard to get people to say, hey, you want to try this like weird quirky game about you know <laughs> whatever. Um, but fortunately, you know, uh, we did it a few times and it was fun. So um, nice. I, 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 I'm waiting for that point where we do it and it's like, Oh, this is terrible. This was really bad. Let's never do this again. <laughs> Let's just play savage worlds from now on. Uh, but, uh, I, yeah, I'm, um, I'm excited to check this out. I like, 
I'm a big fan too of kind of uh, what I call narrow impact games because Mm -hmm. there's not a need to, you know, you don't need to spend two hours on character design. Right. And you don't need to spend, you know, all this time developing character backstories and, and all this stuff. Um, it, it, this feels like something you can, you can just have in your bag and, and, you know, pull out the book and say, Hey, listen, since we didn't have plans, why don't you want to do some archives? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's, that's definitely an appeal of, uh, this whole kind of game is, is that no prep thing. Um, uh, and yeah, the, um, <laughs> some, so I, I mentioned earlier, like the trove, uh, needing like a stack of sci-fi novels. This was kind of a funny thing where, uh, the first time, um, someone who wasn't me play tested this, um, they did it at a con uh-huh. and they wrote back after with the play test report and said, yeah, like it worked great. You know, everything went well. Um, but it was kind of annoying to have to put like eight sci-fi novels in my suitcase <laughs> and lug them around this convention. <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's kind of a good point. Um, so yeah, one of the things in the the final rule book that the Kickstarter is for um, is going to be um, essentially just like a huge set of um, pre-assembled trove words. So you can, um, you know, it's randomly pick some words out of that rather than having to carry, you know, a bunch of dead paper or uh, your Kindle or whatever around with you. So, <laughs> Well, it's funny. I did think of that because um, I've... I've, uh, you know, I, I, I get made fun of by gamers, not made fun of, but you know, they, they, I, I hear them whispering. Um, I've divested myself of most of my books. Mm. Uh, like I got rid of my comic book collection and a lot of my books and cause it was like, I'm not reading these and I can get this stuff digitally and it's a lot more convenient and everything. So you yeah. said sci-fi novels that you have laying around. Uh, when I was like reading the description and I was like, Oh, that's really cool. And then I immediately thought of like, what sci-fi novels do I have around? <laughs> right. I, yeah. <laughs> I got um, one of the original Lando Calrissian uh, trilogy books at a garage sale a couple years back for some reason. I'm like, that's the only one I have. So there's going to be a lot of millennium cards, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that'll, that'll hopefully make it a little more, uh, portable and uh, yeah. easy to use in a variety of pickup situations. So. That's fantastic. Well, we're getting towards the, the end of our time. Um, but I wanted to ask you, what, what are you, what are you playing right now? So, um, so ironically, uh, after a long time of playing uh, weird experimental one-offs um, for the last six months, um, I've been running a big D and D campaign again, which has nice. been a kind of nice, like return to familiar roots. Um, and uh, it's been kind of interesting. Uh, we actually stopped doing this now because I lost some players. But when we first started, I had too many people wanting to play than um, I could comfortably accommodate. So I decided, okay, that's fine. We'll do two groups that are like in the same uh, in the same setting together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot of fun to sort of set up. And the um, the interactions between the two groups were really great. So I had a situation once where. Uh, one group uh, inadvertently created a crime scene for the other group to investigate um, <laughs> without the second group realizing that that was, you know, what was happening. Uh, so, yeah, there was there was some fun overlap there. Um, 
but uh, yeah, um, so that's been uh, um, most of my playtime lately. Um, I'm actually this weekend um, going to uh, a con in the Bay Area called KublaCon, where I mm -hmm. um, am signed up for all of like the weirdest, indiest um, slots available. Um, uh, I'm going to run an archives game there. I'm also going to run a um, drama system game. Um, so uh, so that so Hillfolk is like the core setting of that, and it's like you're a sort of tribe of ancient hunter-gatherers. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it also has a bunch of alternate settings, uh, and one of them that I'm going to run at this con that I'm pretty excited about uh, is called... Um, I forget if this is the name of it or if this is just the name I came up with, uh, but I'm calling it the Waitleys. Uh, and it's uh, the the concept is you are various members of an old uh, East Coast family that in the 1920s uh, and 30s was one of those families that did horrible things that Lovecraft wrote about. Um, huh. and that was all true, ostensibly, but now it's like 80 or 90 years later. Um, and, uh, you know, um, uh, what I'm hoping is going to arise out of it is a lot of stuff about like, how do you deal with like, having uh I, I think my my blurb for the game was something like what do you do when there are skeletons in your family's closet but like literally skeletons <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh so you know someone might play like you know the, the high schooler who's like embarrassed of their family but and doesn't really know how dark the secrets are someone else might play like you know the middle-aged uh um you know banker who is dealing with uh am I going to like keep this family legacy alive or would it be better, you know, for this house to just be burned to the ground and all this stuff lost forever. Someone else might play grandma who still goes off into the woods at midnight to sacrifice, you know, goats to the dark <laughs> God. Um, but drama system is totally all about like getting these interesting characters and then having scenes where like, you know, they come into conflict with each other in various ways. So I'm excited to, uh, to see how this goes. Um, so uh, yeah. Um, so, and there's a couple other uh, things I'm excited to, try at this con so be nice to have another weekend of nonstop, nonstop pretending to be other people <laughs> i've i've had i've i've heard really good things about uh 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 you said it kublacon yeah yeah um because i know some people that are in the bay area and everything they're always like oh it's such a fun con and there's a lot of cool indie stuff and so yeah that's um my 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 year two of doing this podcast will be me going to all the conventions. Uh, nice. This nice. year I had started a new full time job, um, and vacation got eaten up by people getting married. So yeah, I'm like, oh, yeah. I want to go to this convention. Oh, you're gonna come to you know the wedding of your sister in law. <laughs> I uh, should probably do I that. Yeah, yeah. Is she having her wedding on the day a convention is in Denver? Because it'd be perfect. Um, but no, she's actually having, I, I think her wedding is the week before major Denver convention. Mm. And I'm like, Oh, come on. <laughs> um, but uh, anyways, um, well, that sounds, that sounds awesome. It's uh, I do, I do enjoy that. Like, you know, you can play these narrative games that are that have you know very intentional uh, uh, rules around telling stories and everything. But yeah, sometimes it's nice to just go back to playing, um, you know, a, d dudes running through a dungeon or yeah. something like that. So, um, yep. you know, it's yeah. funny. Like coming I'm, home again, you know. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's funny. I've I've really come. Uh, come around on on uh, fifth edition um, mm -hmm. 
because when it was first released, I was grumpy. I, I was one of those, I didn't really like fourth edition at all. Um, but, um, you know, we played a ton of third edition of all kinds. I mean, every game was, was three E at that point. Um, and, uh, and so like when you've played this system where you've been, you know, you've been adventurers, but you've been spies and you've been superheroes and you've been everything. Um, you know, seeing the, these massive changes to the system. And, you know, I thought fourth edition kind of left the community behind a little bit, um, mm-hmm. you know, personal reasons, but fifth edition, it, it pulls so many of those elements from modern gaming in. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah, uh, a lot of, yeah. For sure. Oh, I was going to um, say the, the one thing uh, that, that really got me thinking of that is the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I've always said that if I run it, backgrounds would be the first thing people would choose. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I definitely think that too. It's sort of like, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the other thing I played a while ago was um, uh, the cipher system. Oh yeah. Um, which has some interesting ideas that I feel like are kind of, inspired by things going on in like more indie smaller scale games um so it's kind of interesting to see some of these ideas that are um things more around like uh having your character backstory and stuff actually matter um uh creep into you know big mainstream games which is cool yeah it's um well you know we we uh it turns out that we can hack all this stuff together and do whatever we want Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's magical like that um yep. aaron but yeah no i, I like D a lot too it's the our 5e has been it just feels like a real nice yeah like you said kind of amalgamation of you know everything that's come before so well it's it's way more nicely stream streamlined um you know you you don't have a million things that you're and i i do i mean i i we started this conversation with me mentioning that GURPS is my favorite system of all time. Yeah. I like crunch, <laughs> Yep, <laughs> but just not always. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, fantastic. Aaron, thank you so much for coming by the lounge. Um, yeah. It's been a pleasure. And uh, even though it's not a real physical space, <laughs> but um, virtually cozy, virtually cozy. Um, this was, this was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, I'm really excited about Archives of the Sky. Um, I, I feel like everybody listening should go check it out on on the Kickstarter and, you know, p- pick it up, man. This is this is a good. I, I'm convinced that this is just a good game to have in your back pocket for those times when people are like, I feel like gaming. I'm just not sure what to do. Yeah, you know? that's what I'm hoping. Yeah. So it's like the bop it of role playing games. No, that's terrible. <laughs> don't don't use that. <laughs> I'm not saying you can't. I'm just saying you should never should. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks. It was it was great chatting with you. Um, it was a lot of fun, and uh, you know I look forward to uh, to to seeing you in the future and sitting down at a gaming table with you. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, man.
Thanks, Aaron, for coming by and talking about Archives of the Sky. It's a cool game currently on Kickstarter, so everybody should go check that out. Check out Aaron Reed's stuff on AaronReed.net, and follow him at AaronReed on Twitter. And also, everybody should go check out She's a Super Geek, where Emily and Senda run games with the focus of women as Game Masters. And you know what? Thank you for coming by. Enjoying this song, And So It Begins, by Artificial Music, used under Creative Commons. But also joining me and chatting with these great game designers right here on The Lounge. Thank you. 